section thirty seven of heroines of fiction by william dean howells this librivox recording is in the public domain mr h b fuller's jane marshall and miss m e wilkins's jane field in the fiction of that group of western novelists whom i think the most representative i feel the heroines generally so much less important than the heroes that i find myself in a difficulty which i will confess to the reader strictly upon the condition that it shall go no farther i do this not only because i ought but also because i must for if i did not the reader would himself perceive that either i have been wrong in claiming the supremacy of the heroine in a novel as proof of the author's mastery or else that these western novelists whom i like are really not masterly what is certain is that their heroines are subordinate figures and there is no way out for me but possibly through the fact that the feminization of our american life so apparent in and out of literature in the east has not yet reached the new centres of population between the alleghanies and the mississippi and that the western subordination of the heroine is the instinctive response of fiction to the quantitative if not the qualitative fact to the casual glance the west would seem even more than the east given up socially and intellectually to women but so far women do not hold the first place in western fiction the type of western womanhood studied in selma the heroine of mr robert grant's unleavened bread is the creation or invention of a boston novelist who in obedience to the eastern tradition gives her supremacy in his story to be sure mr robert herrick in the gospel of freedom made a western woman the foremost figure in his story but mr herrick is of bostonian birth like mr grant and though recently of chicagoan adoption is still imaginably of the earlier allegiance in his deference to the nearly and ever womanly eastern fiction in the work of a native westerner like mr will payne the womanly though so truly portrayed in such a story as the money captain is subordinated in interest to the manly and mr george ade whose brilliant divinations of feminine foible form the delightfulness of his stories and fables gives his highest energies or inspirations to the study of persons of his own sex and doc horn and artie and pink marsh are his masterpieces in characterization mr hamlin garland also is more memorable for his men than his women and the critical trailer i am writing with the phraseology of his latest story insistently in mind will find the float of masculine character more abundant in his gold-bearing mountains than the surface indications of heroinism in his earlier and shorter stories and still in his shorter and later stories you are aware of the manly sympathy which divines this precious metal and the rose who is the rose of duchess cooley is a genuine piece of womanhood with both the material and the spiritual awry which form its allure she is imagined with a courage uncommon in our fiction and portrayed with a conscience unable to spare the suggestions of undraped nature which our tradition blinks it is no longer as it is not yet the time for such courage and conscience and we still await a due heroine from a novelist whose work otherwise avouches his power in dealing with character one among western novelists we must go to the page of mr henry b fuller 
apparently more sensitive to eastern influences or the western advance of feminization for a heroine of the fit proportions and i think we find her in one of the chief figures of the story which is upon the whole the most representative of his native city with the procession as not the epical motive of the cliff-dwellers but the epical motive always incurs the danger of turning mechanical and with the procession escapes this while it studies delicately but penetratingly the evolution of chicago from a large town to a great city in the inner and outer life of a typical family which voluntarily and involuntarily prospers with it the daughter of this family who determines to make it share her own social consciousness is a heroine of rare and even new kind she begins properly to win the heart of the reader from the moment when in view of her evident want of beauty and style she humorously decides to be quaint and to work life upon the lines of that decision her quaintness is not an affectation but is the frank recognition of her material limitations and she is powerfully abetted in her resolution by another person of the drama who was a belle of an earlier period but has become quaint inwardly while appearing outwardly a figure of great social power and splendour the management of these two delightful women is of the artistic sort which puts you in full possession of their quality without much advertising you of the process this makes it difficult to give distinctive passages concerning them but not impossible and it is not without the hope of making my reader wish to know them better that i introduce them in the scene where they become fast friends jane marshall the younger of the friends has gone from her father's old-fashioned house to the new-fashioned palace of mrs granger bates to ask the social leader for a subscription in behalf of the working girls club she is fostering and after being snubbed and put down on general principles by the great lady suddenly finds herself caught to her heart when mrs bates learns that she is the daughter of david marshall for david marshall far back in the fifties was a favourite beau of mrs bates's and she still has an honest tenderness for him she takes the odd girl to her heart in every way and leading her through the marble halls where she receives the world she welcomes her to the little room where she lives the door closed with a light click and jane looked about her with a great and sudden surprise poor stupid stumbling child she understood at last in what spirit she had been received and on what footing she had been placed she found herself in a small cramped low-ceiled room which was filled with worn and antiquated furniture there was a ponderous old mahogany bureau with the veneering cracked and peeled in a bed to correspond there was a shabby little writing-desk whose let-down lid was lined with faded and blotted green baize on the floor there was an old brussels carpet antique as to pattern and wholly threadbare as to surface the walls were covered with an old-time paper whose plaintive primitiveness ran in slender pink stripes alternating with narrow green vines in one corner stood a small upright piano whose top was littered with loose sheets of old music and on one wall hung a set of thin black walnut shelves strung together with cords and loaded with a variety of well-worn volumes in the grate was a coal fire mrs bates sat down on the foot of the bed 
and motioned jane to a small rocker that had been reseated with a bit of old rugging mrs bates had stepped to her single little window isn't it a gem she asked i had it made to order one of the old-fashioned sort you see two sash with six little panes in each no weights and cords but simply catches at the side it opens to just two wits if i want anything different i have to contrive it for myself sometimes i use a hairbrush and sometimes a paper cutter do you like my posies she nodded towards the window where thanks to the hairbrush a row of flowers in a long narrow box blew about in the draught asters no 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 but i hoped you'd guess asters they're chrysanthemums you see fashion will penetrate even here but they're the smallest and simplest i could find what do i care for orchids and american beauties and all those other expensive things under glass how much does it please me to have two great big formal beds of gladiolas and foliage plants in the front yard one on each side of the steps still with our position i suppose it can't be helped no what i want is a bed of portulaca and some cypress vines running up strings to the top of a pole as soon as i get poor enough to afford it i'm going to have a lot of flocks and london pride and bachelor's buttons out there in the back yard and the girls can run their clotheslines somewhere else it's hard to keep flowers in a city said jane i know it is at our old house we had such a nice little rose bush in the front yard i hated so to leave it behind one of those little yellow briar roses no it wasn't yellow it was just yaller and it always scratched my nose when i tried to smell it but oh child wistfully if i could only smell it now couldn't you have transplanted it asked jane sympathetically i went back the very next day after we moved out with a peach basket and a fire shovel but my poor bush was buried under seven feet of yellow sand to-day there are seven stories of brick and mortar so all i've got from the old place is just this furniture of moss and the wallpaper the wallpaper not the identical same of course it's like what i had in my bedroom when i was a girl i remembered the pattern and tried everywhere to match it and finally well what finally finally i sent down east and had eight or ten rolls made to order i chased harder than anybody ever chased for a raphael and i spent more than if i had hung the room with gobelins but she stroked the narrow strips of pink and green with a fond hand and cast on jane a look which pleaded indulgence isn't it just too quaintly ugly for anything it isn't any such thing cried jane it's just as sweet as it can be i only wish mine was like it mrs bates began to rummage among the drawers of her old desk there she said presently i knew i could put my hands on it she set a dog-eared type before jane its oval was bordered with a narrow line of gilded metal and its small square back was covered with embossed brown leather there now do you know who that is jane looked back and forth doubtfully between the picture and its owner is it is it pa mrs bates nodded jane regarded the dog-eared type with a puzzled fascination did my father ever wear his hair all wavy across his forehead that way and have such a thing tied around his throat and wear a vest all covered with those little gold sprigs precisely that's just the way he looked the last time we danced together and what do you suppose the dance was guess and guess and guess again it was this mrs bates whisked herself on to the piano stool and began to play and to sing her touch was heavy and spirited but her voice was easily audible above the instrument 
old dan tucker he got drunk he jumped in the fire and he kicked up a chunk of red-hot charcoal with his shoes lordy how the ashes flew who jane dropped the dog-eared type in time to take up the refrain clear the road for old dan tucker you're too late to get your supper clear the road for old dan aha you know it cried mrs bates gaily of course responded jane my education may be modern on the whole but it hasn't neglected the classics completely gentlemen forward she said with a sudden cry which sent mrs bates's fingers back to the keyboard gentlemen forward to mr tucker mrs bates pounded loudly and jane pirouetted up to her from behind ladies forward to mr tucker cried jane and mrs bates left the stool and began dancing towards her then she danced back and took her seat again but with the first chord all forward to miss tucker called jane again and they met face to face in the middle of the room and burst out laughing sit down i'm going to play the java march for you she struck out several ponderous and vengeful chords why called jane is that the java march she spread out her elbows and stalked up and down singing oh the dutch company is the best company right again cried mrs bates you are one of us just as i said well if that's the java march said jane it's in an old book we used to have about the house years and years ago only if you bring it up as an example of pa's taste he liked it because i played it perhaps said mrs bates quietly besides why should you put it to those shocking words it is in that book she continued and i've got one here just like it is it the one with roll on silver moon and wild rove the indian maid bright what's her name bright alfarada same one exactly bring up another chair and we'll go through a whole program of classics program i mean let's see though said jane looking at her watch mercy me where has the morning gone it's after eleven o'clock mrs bates opened the front door herself you can take the choo-choo cars at sixteenth you know and get off at van buren oh dear excuse my baby talk our little reginald two months old you know she accompanied jane halfway down the steps bareheaded as she was and in her morning gown a society reporter who happened to be passing originated the rumour that she had gone insane if after all these passages are illustrative of mrs bates rather than of jane marshall it is perhaps because jane marshall is less susceptible of illustration by select passages she is a singularly undramatic heroine and lives in a sort of subjectivity more perceptible than demonstrable to the sympathetic reader's knowledge of her faithful and lovable character in fact the scene given displays only that surface of her character which is the least significant of her quality it is her hard fate through her zeal for her father's standing and her pride in him to rend him and her mother from the ugly old-fashioned keeping in which they were peacefully rusting out their lives and get them into the procession and when her father falls out of it dying she feels as if she had killed him but she really is not she has been the truest and kindest of all his children to him and she has her reward when the faithful theodore brower long mute with love for her takes heart at the funeral to say that he will go as one of the family and in the same carriage as her or not go at all the grotesqueness is not blinked but the pathos is delicately intimated in it 
and throughout the story the blunt angular outright nature of the girl is studied with constant recognition of her sweetness and unselfish goodness and her humorous self-depreciation she is but one of many women in the story whose personalities are all rendered with an unerring touch two to pass from the atmosphere of mr fuller's with the procession to miss mary e wilkins's jane field is to make proof at once of the variety and the solidarity of american life nothing as to conditions could be farther apart than chicago and green river and yet the vast loud lavish metropolis of the west and the prim meagre niggard new england village are animated by the same ideal of conduct the same puritanized conscience the same desire of justice and righteousness the chicago family in dealing with the problem of the iniquitous son and brother whose sin has followed him home from europe is of as simple and direct an impulse as jane field in her self-denunciation to those she has deceived in her to ingenious endeavour for justice and when it appears that money will serve quite as well as marriage or better they feel a noble shame in compounding the wrong of a like quality with lois field's sense of dishonour in silently witnessing her mother's trespass it is in the europeanized and modernized black sheep of the chicago fold that the differentiation of ideal takes place but his aberration from the home standard is as wide in his chicago domestic circle as it would be in green river the delight of the higher probability must remain with the western novelist who is realistic through and through whereas the new england novelist is at heart romantic and realistic mainly in expression she narrowly escapes the impossible in her plot and saves herself from point to point in the story by clever devices and agile turns which tax the credulity of the reader rather than raise his admiration they ask him to grant premises but the true plot the situation that reproduces life compels him to grant them nevertheless it is fairly possible if not that it is unfairly possible that jane feels seeing her frail young daughter dying before her eyes in a pitiless decline as she believes for want of rest from work and change of air should bethink herself of the inheritance left her dead sister and cloudily keeping in mind her extraordinary resemblance to her sister should suffer herself to be mistaken for her and should try to enter into the enjoyment of her own rights through her sister's property the reader of the story so powerful in spite of its inherent weaknesses will remember that her sister's husband has lost all her own little fortune in speculation and that janefield has no purpose but to recover the value of her fifteen hundred dollars it is with this purpose that she goes to elliot a hundred miles away from green river to seek her just dues from the estate which must upon her sister's death being known revert to the family of her sister's husband the lawyer who has the property in charge greets mrs field as mrs maxwell and in the sudden crazy hope of turning his error to her account without infringing the just rights of the loyal heiress she does not correct him it is her dim unformulated notion that she may collect her dues to the amount of the fifteen hundred dollars lost from the income of the property 
and then relinquish possession but when her daughter follows her to elliot and sets her pitiless young conscience in condemnation over the mother who has taken this desperate chance for her sake jane fields finds it impossible to touch a cent of her dues they put everything by for the legal owners and cower in the old maxwell house keeping themselves from starvation by the little that lois can earn in sewing till a visit from some old green river neighbours deepens the stress of her sin upon jane field and drives her to anticipate detection by denouncing herself to the whole village of elliot you can drive a coach through several places in this loose structure but if you have no wish for such an excursion you can enjoy the psychology of the tremendous situation as it is worked out in the characters of the mother and daughter lois first unexpectedly appears at elliot the morning after her mother's arrival they meet at the lawyer's office where jane field is talking of the property with him and she is obliged to introduce lois as her niece or rather to let the lawyer deceive himself as to their relation she keeps as far as she can from positive deception and then the mother and daughter go home to the maxwell house together mrs field stalked ahead with her resolute stiffness lois followed after her keeping always several paces behind no matter how often mrs field sternly conscious of it slackened her own pace lois never gained upon her when they reached the gate at the entrance of the maxwell grounds and mrs field stopped lois spoke up what place is this said she in a defiantly timorous voice the maxwell house replied her mother shortly turning up the walk are you going in here of course i am well i ain't going in one step mrs field turned and faced her lois said she if you want to go away and desert the mother that's showin' herself willin to die for you you can lois said not another word she turned in at the gate with her eyes fixed upon her mother's face i'll tell you about it when we get up to the house said her mother with appealing conciliation lois slunk mutely behind her again her eyes were full of the impulse of flight when she watched her mother unlock the house door but she followed her in now lois said mrs field i'm going to tell you about this you know i suppose that mr tuxbury took me for your aunt esther lois nodded her dilated eyes never wavered from her mother's face i suppose you heard what he was saying to me when you come in lois i didn't tell him i was your aunt esther the minute i come in he took me for her and miss henry maxwell come into his office and she did and so did mr tuxbury's sister i want going to tell them i want her and i'll tell you why i'm going to have that fifteen hundred dollars of your poor father's earning that i lent your uncle out of this property and this is all the way to do it and i'm going to do it couldn't you have asked the lawyer about the fifteen hundred dollars wouldn't he have given you some oh mother i was going to if he hadn't took me for her but it wouldn't have done any good they wouldn't have been obliged to pay it and folks ain't fond of paying over money when they ain't obliged to i've been a fool to have asked him after he took me for her then you'd got this all planned her mother took her up sharply no i hadn't got it all planned said she i don't deny it come into my head i knew how much folks said i looked like esther but i didn't go so far as to plan it there needn't anybody say i did you ain't going to take the money i'm going to take that fifteen hundred dollars out of it mother you ain't going to stay here and make folks think you're aunt esther yes i am then all lois's horror and terror manifested themselves in one cry oh mother when the fierce sense of wrong subsides and the iron purpose of righting herself breaks in jane field her relentless will asserts itself again in the impulse to punish herself for the deceit she has practised and to take the consequences of her transgression before all the world and she begins with the three old green river neighbours who are visiting her 
when lois left home that afternoon her mother had been in her bedroom changing her dress when she came out she had on her best black dress her black shawl and gloves and her best bonnet the three women stared at her she stood before them a second without speaking the strange look for which lois had watched her face had appeared why what is the matter miss field cried mrs babcock where be you goin'? i'm goin out a little ways replied mrs field then she raised her voice suddenly i've got something to say to all of you before i go said she i've been deceiving you and everybody here in elliot when i came down here they all took me for my sister esther maxwell and i let them think so they've all called me esther maxwell here that's how i got the money oh mr maxwell left it to flora maxwell if my sister didn't outlive him i shouldn't have had a cent i stole it i thought my daughter would die if she didn't have it and get away from green river but that wa'n't any excuse edward maxwell had that fifteen hundred dollars of my husband's and i never had a cent of it but that wa'n't any excuse i thought i'd just stay here and carry it out till i got the money back but that wa'n't any excuse i ain't spent a cent of the money it's all put away just as it was paid him in a sugar bowl in the china closet but that ain't any excuse i took it on myself to do justice instead of the lord and that ain't for any human being to do i ain't esther maxwell i'm brought up short i ain't esther maxwell her voice rose to a stern shriek the three women stared at her then at each other their faces were white amanda was catching her breath and faint gasp jane field rushed out of the room the door closed heavily after her three wild pale faces huddled together in a window watched her out of the yard mrs babcock called weakly after her to come back but she kept on she went out of the yard and down the street at the first house she stopped went up to the door and rang the bell when a woman answered her ring she looked at her and said i ain't esther maxwell then she turned and went down the walk between the rows of marigolds and asters and the woman stood staring after her for a minute then ran in and the windows filled with wondering faces jane field stopped at the next house with the same message after she left a woman pelted across the yard in a panic to compare notes with her neighbors she kept on down the street and she stopped at every door and said i ain't mr maxwell now and then somebody tried to delay her to question her and obtain an explanation but she broke away there was about her a terrible mental impetus which intimidated people stood instinctively out of her way as before some rushing force which might overwhelm them she went on and on all the summer afternoon and canvassed the little village with her remorse and confession of crime finally the four words which she said at the door seemed almost involuntary they became her one natural note the expression of her whole life it was as if she had never said any others when she went up the path to the maxwell house she said them where the shadow of a pine tree fell darkly in front of her like the shadow of a man she said them when she stood before the door of the house whose hospitality she had usurped there was a little crowd at her heels but she did not notice them until she was entering the door then she said the words over to them i ain't esther maxwell she entered the sitting-room the people following there were her three old friends and neighbors the minister and his wife daniel tuxbury his sister and her daughter mrs jane maxwell and her daughter and her own lois she faced them all and said it again i ain't esther maxwell lois pressed forward and clung to her mother she moaned mother then for once her mother varied her set speech lois want to blame she said i want you to know it all of you lois want to blame she didn't know until after i'd done it she wanted to tell but i told her they'd put me in prison lois want to blame i ain't esther maxwell oh mother don't don't lois sobbed she hung about her mother's neck and pressed her lips to that pale wrinkled face whose wrinkles seemed now to be laid in stone 
not a muscle of jane field's face changed she kept repeating at intervals in precisely the same tone her terrible undercord to all the excitement about her i ain't esther maxwell end of section thirty seven